Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 171, Philadelphia Fever. Last time out, we got into the details of the ex-Sullings whiskey tax of March 1791 and the repercussions of this, which followed over the next 18 months until Washington's proclamation in September 1792, signaling a move towards a tougher enforcement. It became clear quite quickly that enforcement of the excise tax was going to be problematic. We have Hamilton's reports to Congress in 1791 and 1792 discussing it, and we can see him dismiss the criticisms of the legislation that came from the frontier. He wasn't entirely dismissive of all criticism, just a smooth it. Hamilton typically listened to certain sorts of financial arguments, which typically came from the larger producers in the East. This fit with his Federalist worldview. For example, we've spoken in our episodes on Hamilton's financial programme that he was concerned with manufacturing, and so he was particularly receptive to criticism that the legislation was damaging a domestic industry, making foreign imports more competitive. So Hamilton supported lowering the domestic tax and adding an additional duty on foreign imports. However, arguments about accountancy requirements being burdensome to smaller producers, Hamilton found unconvincing. Just as he dismissed reports about lack of currency on the frontier, Hamilton told Congress that he would support payment in kind due to lack of currency if Congress found it to be the case but he didn't believe it was. Of course, Congress would not allow this anyway, so it was a moot point. But Hamilton's lack of concern for the Western distillers compared to those in the East is striking. It has been argued by Dorothy Fennell that Hamilton was actually using the excise as a method of increasing market efficiency in the West. This thinking is that the excise would intentionally put too much pressure on the inefficient Western producers, forcing them to either close or expand their business into greater volumes, in the manner of the Easterners. I'm not sure I find it convincing that Hamilton actually intended this to happen, but I'm certain he'd have been delighted with it as an unintended consequence. This was the mindset driving events as we move into 1793. Hamilton thought he had shown that he had been receptive to feedback when he felt it was reasonable and evidence, but the Westerners saw only intransigence. Washington's proclamation ended the peaceful, although extra-legal, campaign, but did nothing to extract taxes in Western Pennsylvania. John Neville, the informer who we spoke about last time, wrote to George Clymer, who was the head of the excise department in Pennsylvania, saying, quote, At all events, I will venture to say that the law will not be carried into execution until government find it convenient to make examples of some offenders. Every exertion that has hitherto been made by two or three officers has been defeated. The delinquents have passed unpunished and in fact triumphed over the officer. It cannot be expected that people who have distilled spirits, in direct contradiction to the law, will suffer an individual in a remote, unsettled quarter to make seizure of it. End quote. 
Attacks of collectors continued, indeed, throughout 1793 in Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and Kentucky. What made Western Pennsylvania different was that there, officers kept trying to collect the taxes. In any other area, nobody would take the role. If it was Kentucky, there was uniformed hostility to the excise. But because of that uniformity, it wasn't collected there. Simply, nobody tried to collect the taxes. But in Pennsylvania, some accepted it and so there was conflict. It's interesting to consider why Pennsylvania was different to the rest of the frontier. The fact that the Treasury had marked Pennsylvania out as a test case for the law strikes me as the obvious factor. But other considerations, such as John Neville, must be taken into consideration. The men attempting to enforce the law, such as Neville, represented the gulf between the frontiersmen and the Easterners. Now, events in Western Pennsylvania were turbulent, but they were not the only thing concerning Washington and Hamilton. There were bigger events happening in Europe. This was the importance of covering the French Revolution. Because of what happened at the beginning of 1793? That's right. The French executed Louis XVI. The focus of all the European powers was France. We are right now in the middle of the War of the First Coalition, and Britain was trying to bring Portugal into the war effort. I won't go into the string of diplomatic manoeuvres that Britain was involved with, but the end result was Algerian pirates being set free, which resulted in them attacking Atlantic shipping. The Americans interpreted this as deliberate British provocation, attacking the trade that America was so involved with, when really American trade was of no consideration in Whitehall. What was more significant was events in Canada. Canadian officials thought that the Americans would use British focus on France to annex Canada, so they started to prepare for this. Americans saw this, connected it with the Algerian pirates, and assumed Britain was planning an invasion. The governor of Upper Canada advocated a preemptive invasion, but cooler heads prevailed. But all this painted a dark portrait in Philadelphia. If the British, Spanish and Indians coordinated their actions on the frontier, what would happen if most of the frontiersmen were actively resisting the American government? Washington was not optimistic about the answer to that question. The press started to attack Washington, while democratic clubs supporting the French Revolution broke out, causing unrest, furthered by the French ambassador Genet trying to raise armies. There was a lot going on, but then there was one more. In the first week of August, 1793, deaths started in the capital. I'll quote Dr. William Curry, a fellow of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, who published a description of the malignant infectious fever prevailing at present in Philadelphia. Quote, The patient first complains of weariness and weakness, which, in a few hours, is succeeded by a sense of chillness and an oppressive full pain and giddiness in the head, an oppressive weight and structure about the breast, particularly at the region of the heart, as if the space was two pulsations. 
the breathing is performed with quickness and uneasiness. These symptoms in most cases are soon succeeded by a frequent propensity to puke, and this by a quick, full but soft and irregular pulse, great heat about the head, neck and breast, the skin generally hot and moist about the neck and forehead, but dry and little increases of heat around the feet and legs. If to these symptoms we add an extraordinary prostration of strength or sudden debility in the animal functions of the body, we have a perfect description of the fever under consideration from the first day of its attack to the third of its progress. When no amendment takes place by the third or fourth day, most of the recited symptoms become more distressing and alarming, with the pulse low and sunk, frequent vomiting of matter resembling coffee grounds in colour and confidence, generally occurs before the disease terminates. When it proves mortal, together with a cadaverous appearance of countenance, succeeded by a deep yellow or leaden colour of the skin and nails, the eyes become suffused with blood, and the countenance appears like that of one strangled. But no signs of jaundice appear, either in the urine or faeces. In some cases, a profuse discharge of blood from the nose concludes the catastrophe. A hiccup is a very frequent but not constant symptom, nor does vomiting always occur. The tongue is seldom very foul or dry, nor does the patient always crave drink. His intellects, though always confused, and seldom so much disordered as to amount to delirium, subsultus tendium are very rare. When the disease terminates favourably, the symptoms generally abate on the third or fourth day, accompanied by profuse sweat. When it ends fatally, it is generally between the fifth and eighth day, although some have survived the tenth and died afterwards. End quote. As you may have worked out from that description, yellow fever had broken out in Philadelphia. It is disputed where exactly the fever came from, but a leading contender is that it came on ships fleeing French colonial possessions in the wake of the Revolution. Death started at the start of August, and it was soon an epidemic. Those that could fled the city. Washington fled to Mount Vernon, while Hamilton caught the fever and retired to New York to recuperate. It's estimated that maybe half of the population of the city left. Government ground to a complete halt. About 10% of the 50,000-strong population died in the epidemic, making it one of the most significant disease outbreaks in American history. Clearly, the federal government had more important things going on than a handful of people in Pennsylvania not paying a whiskey tax. This was completely misunderstood by the frontiersmen. When the grip of the fever on Philadelphia finally loosened in 1794, the federal government's thoughts turned to war. The situation was still tense along the frontier, and the Federalists advocated the creation of a 10,000-strong army. There was also talk of creating a navy. The British had invoked a law from the Seven Years' War that they would attack all neutral shipping going to and from the French West Indies. However, this was kept secret until a raid was conducted 
taking American vessels in the Caribbean. I could take this in a lot of different directions, but for the moment I want to focus in on the effects on federal revenues. With a reduction in trade, the federal government suddenly found itself short on funds, and Hamilton proposed a new revenue act collecting internal taxes. But these centred on the industries of the East Coast. The Easterners mostly kept their criticisms to economic matters rather than the ideology of taxation, and did not make localist arguments. This all provoked fierce debate, with the Republican faction, including Madison, arguing that economic responses against Britain would be more efficient than a military response, and cheaper which would negate the need for new taxes. I won't go too much into all of this, but what's important to understand is the sense of a national crisis that was engulfing the United States in 1794. So, when the frontier settlements, who had completely misunderstood why the federal government had behaved the way it had over the past few years, continued setting up extra-legal meetings, criticising the government for failing to protect them, and questioning why they should pay taxes to a state that was doing little for them, you can understand why, from the position of Philadelphia, they appeared subversive, potentially treasonous. I hope I've been able to explain accurately why it's unlikely anyone in these meetings had treasonous intentions, instead of viewing themselves as part of an American tradition which involved protests against unjust taxes and that these meetings were unconnected with a separate thread of violent protest. This wasn't understood, though, in the halls of power. I suspect a factor in this is that many of the leading figures we're dealing with, such as Hamilton and Washington, were Federalists. Federalists had an aristocratic perspective on the world, and they would have difficulty understanding that people could form opinions by themselves, they simply had to be following the instructions of an elite. Well, they weren't. And just as the democratic societies continued to meet over the spring of 1794, so did the violence against excise collectors continue. While Washington personally tried to sell his land in the West, finding it was producing more problems than profits, as president, he continued to attempt to enforce the Constitution, as did Congress. They revised the earlier laws to make collection easier, such as collectors no longer needing to establish an office in every county they operated in. Now they could run operations out of a head office. A concession was also made to smaller distillers, who only used the stills for a portion of the year. They could now make reduced payments for their reduced operations. The changes also allowed excise cases to be tried in state courts. This reduced the fear of distillers that they could be tried by complete strangers hundreds of miles away who did not understand their local issues. But even these reforms did not alter the impasse. The elites were divided about the best way to approach their diplomatic problems. The British, Spanish and Indians seemed to be lurking, discontent was arrived in western Pennsylvania, right by the national capital. There was trouble all over the frontier and Kentucky seemed to be on the verge of seceding from the Union, or attacking New Orleans, in an effort to gain access to the Mississippi. The situation was a powder keg. It just needed a spark to set it to light. And that's where we'll leave the narrative for this week. 
Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.